This is the Political Economy Podcast. Complexity in an age of climate catastrophe, social injustice, and post-democracy. Less is more. How degrowth will save the world by Jason Hickel. William Heinemann Publishing, published in 2020. Jason Hickel is an economic anthropologist. He's originally from Swaziland and is now teaching at Goldsmiths University of London and is a researcher at the London School of Economics. Humans used to live according to a philosophy Hickel calls animalism, but is also called monism. It is the idea that we are one with society, that is other humans, but also with animals, plants, rivers and lakes, nature in general. It is the conviction that if we take from nature, we have to give back to it. We cannot take more than we give. Reciprocity in the nature of gifts. Enlightenment thinkers began to think of animalism or monism as backward. They preferred dualism, the idea that we humans and nature are not one, but two, and as individuals, we're also fully separate from other humans. It has led us to think of nature as a resource to exploit, to take more from it than we give back, to accumulate, to grow, which is the logic of capitalism. But natural systems do not grow forever. They reach maturity at a certain level. To grow forever is an anomaly in nature, akin to the logic of a cancerous cell. The Capitalocene and its various fixes. Some people call our age the Anthropocene, but what is destroying the world around us is not people, it is capitalism. Capitalism is a relatively recent phenomenon. There had been private property before, as well as markets and prices. What makes capitalism capitalism, according to Hickel, is its unique logic of perpetual growth. After the bubonic plague struck in 1347, labor became scarce and land abundant. The peasants won themselves freedom from serfdom in much of Western Europe, or at least more autonomy from feudalism. An egalitarian, cooperative society began to take hold based on the principles of local self-sufficiency. Food became cheap and nutrition improved. The period between 1350 and 1500 was described by Brodel as the golden age of the proletariat. Self-sufficient farming also meant that it was a golden age for the ecology as well. Elites were naturally displeased with such a state of affairs. They began to fence off the commons, evict the peasants, and make all this previously shared land private property. This was the age of enclosure. Peasants lost their access to land, forest, wood, game, lakes, water, and fish. On the one hand, the enclosures amounted to primary land accumulation for future capitalists. 
On the other hand, they guaranteed labor at subsistence wages. Life expectancy, real incomes, and nutrition declined markedly. This was the first fix of capitalism. The second fix in the history of capitalism was the colonization of the Americas. It enabled accumulation from abroad at a massive scale. Five million indigenous people were enslaved, while the rest, some 95% of them, were wiped out. Some 15 million Africans were shipped across the ocean to work as slaves, with another 2 million killed on the way. Capitalism based on slavery was carried out on land stolen from indigenous people. If those slaves would have been paid only minimum wages, says Hickel, with a modest rate of interest, their wages would now amount to four times the GDP of the United States of America. Colonization of the Americas enabled Western Europe to shift its economy from agriculture to industry to purchase agricultural products from the East. It also enabled a military expansion that led to the conquest of India, Africa, Australia, the Far East, and the eventual subjugation of China. Colonization also ensured raw materials for the key industries. Take the case of cotton, which does not grow naturally in Europe, but was essential for the prominent industry of the age, textiles. The Industrial Revolution, the rise of capitalism, and primary accumulation in Western Europe took place on the back of all of this. As Hickel points out, enclosure was a process of internal colonization, and colonization was a process of enclosure. By breaking up locally self-sufficient economies around the world, they simultaneously forcefully created their own consumers. The economy of the South collapsed from 77% of global manufacturing in 1750 to barely 13% by 1900. The human body was increasingly treated as a resource. Tens of thousands of vagabonds were simply executed for idleness. Not working was considered a sin. Work was made to become the centerpiece of identity. And in the Protestant ethic, profit and accumulation became signs of divine predestination, being part of God's chosen people. Land, gold, and raw materials were taken for free by colonizers. Labor had to be paid a minimum amount to survive, but capital chose never to pay household work, hard toil mostly carried out by suppressed women folk, which helped reproduce the labor power of workers. Hickel here draws heavily on the work of feminist social historian Silvia Federici. And of course, exploiting nature was increasingly believed to be free. Exploiting nature was another fix. Accumulation as the central logic of capitalism. Markets that existed prior to capitalism, where one could buy things that were useful. 
But capitalism is not about use value. It is about exchange value. Profits are not made to buy useful things. They are made to be reinvested in order for the business to grow. A small family firm exists to sustain the owner and his relatives. A large corporation, by contrast, is forced to grow, otherwise investors will leave it for another. It has to expand into new markets, new countries, use advertisements to sway more consumers, buy up competitors and put small firms out of business. A standard 3% profit rate means not linear, but exponential growth. Hickel here uses the famous lecture of the Indian guru who asked to be rewarded by the Maharaja by one modest grain of rice on the first square of the chessboard, two on the second, four on the third, and so on. Halfway through the chessboard, the Maharaja's kingdom was bankrupted. At today's size of the global economy, maintaining a decent rate of profit means having to add an economy the size of Britain each year, according to Hickel, one of the largest economies, and of course, growing each year. And that's on top of what we already produce all around the world. Total material use has accelerated exponentially in the 20th century. We are now using twice as much physical material as the Earth is capable of handling. Overall global material use has been increasing in lockstep with GDP. There is no decoupling. The same thing is true of CO2 emissions. Some northern nations have begun to decouple growth from CO2 emissions. But they were only able to do this because production has been shifted to the global south. A fix again. Hickel calls it atmospheric colonization. The north imports manufactured goods from the south, predominantly from China, which is now the greatest emitter in absolute terms, although not per capita. Overall, global CO2 emissions have continued to grow, which actually means, points out Hickel correctly, that at a globally holistic level, renewable forms of energy have not replaced traditional forms. They have been added to them. And during the same period, due to economic growth, we have increased global energy needs by more than the renewables we have installed. There is no way around it. Growth needs to stop. The obsession with GDP. During the Great Depression in the 1930s, a Russian-American economist called Simon Kuznets invented the gross domestic product figure to measure the size of the economy. He warned that it should not be used to gauge welfare or living standards. That was not what it accounted for. Journalists, politicians and economists went ahead and used it for that anyway and have done so ever since. The depression was overcome 
by Keynesian redistributive welfare measures, as well as by what amounted to a planned economy during the war. The obsession with GDP stayed. Productivity increases all the time. Jobs are lost. In order to maintain employment, economies need to grow. Governments finance themselves through government bonds. Bonds have yields, so governments are forced to pay interest, which once again requires economic growth. If growth slows down, governments cannot repay the debt and are forced into a debt trap. However, by the 1970s, capital became unhappy with the welfare states. Due to strong trade unions and high taxes, labor became too expensive. Therefore, it was time for the next fix, neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is when the state identifies with the accumulative goals of capital. Rather than concentrating on the welfare of as many citizens as possible and their use value, the purpose of the state becomes to boost exchange value and the growth of corporations. The neoliberal agenda was also pushed in the global south, according to Hickel, in the form of the Washington Consensus. Previous developmentalism, which successfully gave the third world growth, was succeeded by so-called structural adjustment programs, coerced by the IMF and the World Bank. Liberalization, austerity, and unequal, unfavorable trade treaties. Poorer Southern governments had to accept these because they got caught up in a debt trap in the 80s when Fed Chairman Paul Walker raised dollar interest rates sky high. As a consequence of these policies, growth rates in the global south collapsed, but in the global north, they recovered somewhat. It was a fix again. Global climate injustice. Not all of us are equally responsible for the Capitalocene. Both material use and CO2 emissions increase exponentially with wealth. This means that the richest peak of the global income and wealth distributions are dramatically more liable. The global top 10% are responsible for half of all emissions and the global top 20% for two-thirds. If we all lived at the level of middle-income countries, we would be living at just about the planetary boundary. Of course, population dynamics do play a role as well. Hickel agrees that population explosion must be stopped. Gender equality, reproductive rights, education, and the accessibility of reproductive techniques play a key role in this. However, he also points out that limiting global population will not solve the problem by itself. After all, material use has been growing faster than the size of the global population. Due to the growth imperative, capitalism will seek out new ways to get us to consume more. As we have already mentioned, certain countries in the global south have become 
the largest CO2 emitters in absolute terms as a consequence of the offshoring of manufacturing from the global north, especially China, which is now the biggest emitter. However, there are several problems with this figure. First of all, per capita, the USA is still far bigger an emitter than China. Secondly, if we take historical emissions above the 350 ppm line of sustainability, the US is responsible for 40% of that, the European Union 29%. The global south is below that line, including China. At the same time, climate scientists calculate that the global south is already forced to suffer above 80% of the damages caused by climate change, a ratio that is forecasted to increase. The problem with the Paris Agreement. Many of us were relieved when the Paris Agreement finally suggested that the governments of the world were at last ready to face up to the challenge of climate change. However, Hickel warns us that even if all the national commitments will be fulfilled, and we know that they will not be, we are still not heading towards a much advertised 1.5 degrees level of warming, but towards at least 2 degrees. How is that possible? It is because the models behind the Paris Agreement rely on posterior climate capture. This is a technology that even its inventors say cannot be scaled to global levels. If we would try for the biofuel plantations involved in the scheme, we would need an area two to three times the size of India. That is simply not going to happen. And if it did, it would take away so much arable land and water from agriculture that it, was it would cause famine on a global scale. In fact, if we were to decarbonize the existing global economy in the short time we have left, without degrowth, we would need to do it at a rate of 7% per year to stay under 1.5 degrees and 14% per year to stay under 2 degrees. That is effectively impossible to do with a growing economy. At the same time, material extraction will continue in areas necessary for, for solar panels and wind farms. Substances such as copper, lead, zinc, aluminum, iron, neodymium, silver, and indium. For battery storage and electric cars, we shall need much more lithium, dysprosium, copper, and cobalt. So perhaps a shift towards a service-based economy can save us. In fact, such a shift has already been taking place. The share of services in GDP has been increasing globally, but so has material use. This means that we are not dematerializing, but instead we are rematerializing. This is because what we call services actually require a lot of physical stuff. Hickel's example is tourism. 
It requires planes, airports, hotels, swimming pools, restaurants, luxury cruisers, buses, and taxis. Improvements in efficiency will not save us either. It just leads to what economists call the Jevons paradox. Savings made through improvements in efficiency actually lead to more material use because in capitalism, firms use the savings to expand production. The idea of a circular economy, the main article of faith in European Union sustainability policy, is also flawed. First of all, one can never recycle 100% of all materials. Decisive amounts, such as food and energy, get used up. Others, such as mining waste, is simply that, waste. Materials degrade in recycling. Secondly, the logic of growth is incompatible with a circular economy. It needs additional inputs. Which is why it is also wrong to assume that pricing in all material inputs would somehow solve our problems. Apart from the unlikely scenario of pricing in humus regeneration by earthworms, it is also unlikely that capitalism will allow everything to be priced in accurately. If it did, we would already have priced in carbon usage correctly. In this case, oil and gas exploration would have ceased, usage would have declined, and we wouldn't have a problem in the first place. Growth would have stopped. Hickel makes a very pertinent observation here. If green growthers were really, would really believe in what they preach, they should be willing to accept a cap on material usage and emissions right now. Yet, whenever degrowthers make this offer to them, they always decline. Why? Do they suspect deep down that green growth is a myth? The obsession with growth. Hickel then attempts to find the root of our obsession with growth. The justification one most often hears is that growth gives us better living conditions. However, in reality, the connection is much more complicated. First of all, for a long time at the beginning, capitalism did not give us better living conditions. It gave us enclosures, slavery, and the Dickensian pauperization of the working masses. When living standards finally did begin to improve, it was not growth by itself, but equality of distribution. Hickel here leans on the work of Simon Slater, a leading public policy expert who has demonstrated that most of the improvements in human life expectancy come not from economic growth, but from the spread of public goods, primarily water sanitation, universal health care, and public education. In other words, not private, but public goods. A relatively low level of development is enough to provide these. After a certain inflection point, economic growth 
results in no further improvements as it has been demonstrated by the book The Spirit Level, for instance, by Wilkinson and Pickett. The United States is a massive outlier, demonstrating just this phenomenon. A very wealthy country, where unequal distribution and widespread lack of access to public goods results in significantly lower standards of living. There are plenty of examples of the opposite phenomenon. Countries that are significantly poorer than the United States, where general public goods ensure higher living standards. In fact, when measured with the right indicators, it turns out that human living standards actually begin to decline after a certain level of economic output. Too much stress, too little time, high environmental costs, too many working hours, loss of community, various other factors account for this. The ideology that growth enhances living standards has been pushed for long decades. In fact, it does not. The overwhelming proportion of new income globally now goes to the top 1% and the top 10%. There has been plenty of data on this in recent years. And all this on top of the already enormous inequalities of wealth. In fact, growth has served the purpose of being a substitute for distribution. Global elites have been hoping that some meager income growth reaches people down below as well, pacifying them, enabling further massive enrichment at the top. But the need for ecologically sustainable degrowth calls all that into question, shifting attention to questions of social justice and redistribution. Solutions. For solutions, Hickel refers back to his previous book, The Divide, also highly recommended. It involves measures such as a global minimum wage, fairer trade treaties, democratizing the IMF and the WTO and the World Bank, and debt cancellation for the poorest nations. As far as debt is concerned, Hickel often refers to the work of late anthropologist David Graeber. In addition, he mentions banning planned obsolescence, cutting advertising, boosting the sharing economy, and ending food waste. He mentions curtailing industries such as energy, industrial agriculture, especially red meat production, weapons, private jets and commercial aviation, single-use plastics, fast fashion, and sports stadiums. Reducing these will also reduce transport, warehousing, waste disposal, and other related services. Taxes alone will not do the job. We need explicit hard quantitative limits. What about employment? There would be a shift to renewable industries. The state should run a job guarantee program. But before all else, we should reduce working time. It would share jobs amongst more people, 
It would make people freer and happier, and it would have a huge positive environmental impact. Universal basic services, such as water, housing, etc., would be provided for everyone for free in order to enable a firm starting base for everyone. To achieve a fairer distri distribution, we could have not just minimum wages, but maximum wages. These could be set as a multiple of the minimal wage. Politicians and business leaders would then have every incentive to raise the minimum living standards of the poorest among us. However, real change comes from a change in our mindsets. The liberating realization that we can live in a world where the economy does not need to grow in order for us to have a decent life. The most frequent jerk reaction against degrowth is that it has the same effect on our lives as austerity. However, Hickel makes the point that it is exactly the opposite. By forcing the focus on redistribution, degrowth creates abundance for the many. Hickel quotes the degrowth economist George Callis, who has observed that it is capitalism that keeps on creating artificial shortages, where otherwise there would already be abundance. Without intentionally engineered shortages of money, time and work, jobs, capitalism would not exist. No one would partake. By demonstrating that in fact we already live in abundance, given the right distribution, people will be freed. Less for the very richest is in fact more for the rest of us. You have been listening to the Political Economy Podcast. For debates and feedback, find us on Facebook. If you'd like to donate to the show, please find us on Patreon. See you next time.